Hi, I'm Stephen Kotowicz. Welcome to Tesla Goes to the Movies. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Ever since I learned there was going to be a movie about the War of the Currents, I thought it made sense to have a separate sub-podcast within Tesla The Life and Times that focused on Tesla's portrayal in the film. Hence, Tesla Goes to the Movies. What I didn't expect was that it would take so long for the War of the Currents movie to ever see the light of day, that in the meantime there would be a couple of other pop culture portrayals of Tesla that aired right around the same time that the movie finally came out. Given that, I figured it probably also makes sense to look at those portrayals too. And while these other two appearances happened on TV rather than in a movie, well, I'm too lazy to come up with a different title, so Tesla goes to the movies it is. While I had planned to do some kind of overview episode about Tesla's portrayal and pop culture at the end of the podcast, after we finish looking at the man's whole life, since there are a few other instances of Tesla in TV and movies, The Prestige, of course, is probably the most notable example, and I understand Tesla also appears from time to time on the long-running Canadian historical mystery show, The Murdoch Mysteries, maybe this will be a segment that runs from time to time as occasion arises. But, tease that I am, We're going to wait a couple of weeks to look at the current war film, even though it started this whole idea. Instead, we're going to start with something near and dear to my heart. Doctor Who. As should be no surprise to anyone, I have always been kind of nerdy. While nerdy pursuits of all kinds are in the ascendancy now, everything from livestream games of Dungeons & Dragons played by good-looking celebrities, to every blockbuster movie being about some comic book superhero or other, or the latest adventures in a galaxy far, far away, it was not always so. Mostly, liking this stuff back in the day would get you made fun of at best, and beat up at worst. As a kid, growing up in the 1980s and early 1990s, I knew almost no one who liked the nerdy, geeky stuff that I did. Even those kids from Stranger Things had more friends than me. So, I confess that for an OG nerd like me, it has been rather odd to see what was once the kind of interests you hid from people, now being a freak flag that you happily let fly. And nowhere, I think, is this more the case than with Doctor Who. For those of you who might not know, Doctor Who is a British science fiction TV show produced by the BBC off and on since 1963. The program depicts the adventures of a Time Lord called The Doctor, no other name, who is a centuries-old extraterrestrial being from the planet Gallifrey, but who is, for all appearances, human. He does have two hearts, FYI. The Doctor explores the universe in a time-traveling spaceship called the TARDIS. Its exterior appears as a blue British police box, essentially a kind of telephone booth, which was a common sight in Britain in 1963 when the series first aired, but of course, like all other telephone booths, is almost non-existent in the modern world. This has actually become something of a gag in more recent series. The TARDIS is well known for having a vastly large interior that far exceeds its small exterior dimensions, one of the many mysteries of the Time Lords and their technology. Accompanied by a number of companions, the Doctor combats a variety of foes, often extraterrestrial, while working to save civilizations and help people in need. As mentioned, the program originally ran from 1963 to 1989, When, due to flagging ratings and institutional indifference by the BBC, the show was put on indefinite hiatus. 
While there was an unsuccessful attempt to revive the show in 1996, it wasn't until 2005 that the show came back to life for real, produced in-house by BBC Wales in Cardiff. Given the long run of the show, plus the 16-year gap in production, 13 different actors have headlined the series as The Doctor. The transition from one actor to another is written into the plot of the show, with the concept of regeneration into a new incarnation, a plot device in which a Time Lord transforms into a new body when the current one is too badly harmed to heal normally. Each actor's portrayal is unique, but all represent stages in the life of the same character, and together they form a single lifetime within a single narrative. The time-traveling feature of the plot means that different incarnations of the Doctor occasionally meet, which, frankly, is always a lot of fun, as the various incarnations of the Doctor don't always really like each other very much. When the series rebooted, there were some significant changes from the original 1960s to 1980s run. Gone, for instance, were the cheap cardboard sets that shook as people walked across the stage. Instead, in came high-end production values, and the latest and greatest of today's computer-driven special effects. Also gone were the frumpy, curmudgeonly, and or eccentric old men who played the Doctor in the past. Instead, in came young, rail-thin heartthrobs to play everyone's beloved Time Lord. I think it's fair to say that the noticeable rise of young female fans of Doctor Who were spurred on in no small part by the boy-band dreaminess of some of the more recent Doctors, especially the 10th and possibly best-ever Doctor, played by David Tennant, and the 11th Doctor, played by Matt Smith. And for the male fans of Doctor Who, the Doctor's traveling companions, who have tended throughout the show's history to be primarily young women, are also just stunners these days. I think particularly here of Rose, the first companion of the first rebooted Doctor, played by Billy Piper, Amy Pond, the Doctor's flame-haired Scottish companion, played by Karen Gillan, and the mysterious, thrice-lived Clara Oswald, the longest-tenured of the Doctor's companions since the reboot, played by Jenna Louise Coleman. Now, while I am a fan of much of the early reboot seasons, I will admit my fondness for the cardboard set and curmudgeonly eccentric Doctors of my childhood, but maybe that's just me. One change that I am less a fan of was the move to the one-hour episode format when the show was rebooted. It used to be, in the style of old radio dramas, that the Doctor's adventures would be split into three or four half-hour segments, each of which would end with a cliffhanger. I feel like this allowed for a bit more expansive storytelling and things not feeling quite so rushed in the way that they sometimes do in a one-hour format, as the writers try to wrap up the Doctor's adventure that week within the time allotted. But again, maybe that's just me. In 2018, in another first for the series, when Peter Capaldi wrapped up his stint as the Twelfth Doctor, who was old and curmudgeonly, yes, but lacked the frumpiness and eccentricity to really pull it off, if you ask me, when Peter Capaldi wrapped up his stint, the Doctor regenerated as a woman. The Thirteenth Doctor is portrayed by English actress Jodie Whittaker. And that's where we find ourselves for this episode that we're looking at today. Series 38, Episode 4, Nikola Tesla's Night of Terror. Now, like any show that involves real historical characters participating in made-up events, there has been some fudging of details for dramatic purposes in the episode. So, while I'll be pointing out some differences from what actually happened, and because it's Tesla, I feel compelled to say right up at the start, though it shouldn't be necessary, that there were no actual aliens involved in Tesla's life or work, 
Because of these differences, uh, while I'll point out what really happened, it's more for the sake of historical trivia. I'm not trying to make a huge deal or or nitpick the way I would say about the O'Neill book, because this is clearly science fiction and not meant to be taken as a historical record. While there's no year given in the episode, everything online seems to say that it was set in 1903. That seems reasonable, and it's the assumption I'm operating under. The Doctor at one point in the episode notes that, at this point in the history of New York City, Times Square and the Empire State Building don't yet exist, but Central Park, however, has, quote, been around for ages, so the 1903 date fits. The period setting of 1903 New York was recreated in the studio and lots of the Bulgarian studio New Boyana, where they also filmed the movie London Has Fallen and various Sylvester Stallone movies. The episode opens on a shot of Nikola Tesla addressing a small crowd from the American side of Niagara Falls, looking across the horseshoe toward the Canadian side. I, Nikola Tesla, have invited you here to pull back the curtain. Shall we begin? Observe! And at first, I couldn't quite put my finger on why it didn't look right to me. But I realized it was because they've done a digital matte painting of what the place would have looked like before the city of Niagara Falls, Ontario grew up around the falls. And Niagara Falls, Ontario is hard to miss because it's a super tacky city. Or at least the downtown portion that faces the falls is. There's a giant casino with a tower that overlooks the Canadian side of the falls, and then there's the tourist promenade that is Clifton Hill, where you can find all manner of tacky sideshow-type amusements, including haunted houses, wax museums, arcades, and even some carnival rides. Not to mention, of course, souvenir shops. It's really something, and its tackiness is not to be missed if ever you visit the city. There's also Niagara Falls, New York, right across the river, you can actually walk across a bridge between the two sides to visit for the day. Remember your passports. Niagara Falls, New York also has a giant casino, although not so near the falls. The rest of Niagara Falls, New York around the casino is, well... And the neighborhood is like a demilitarized zone. Yeah, so stick to the Canadian side. There's more to do and you'll get a better view of the falls. They also show the old power plant down at the base of the Canadian side of the falls, which you'd see if you were looking across from the American side. Having been to the U.S. side of the falls a number of times, I can attest that they did a really good job of getting this power plant to look right, and making it look like it must have when Tesla was actually first installing his system. The buildings, uh, long out of use, are now more derelict looking in real life. Here they're shiny and new. Uh, I'm really impressed at the attention to detail for what is essentially a two-second shot. My first impression of Tesla was that the actor playing him, Goran Vishnich, who you'd probably remember from his role on ER back in the day, and more recently in the wonderful but tragically underrated show Timeless, uh, check it out on Netflix, he actually looks a lot like Tesla with the mustache and the parted hairdo that he's sporting. A number of other actors who have played him don't look very much like Tesla at all, including David Bowie and Ethan Hawke. While Tesla was ethnically Serbian and Vishnich is Croatian, they share certain dark-haired Eastern European good looks. From a writing perspective, I admire the economy of storytelling here, as within the first three minutes of the episode, we already see Tesla demonstrating some of his generators, doing his old holding a light bulb in your hand and lighting it up with no wires trick, and he's already hitting people up for a potential investment in his world wireless system, which we'll talk about more in upcoming episodes. 
And within these first few minutes, the show also establishes him as a visionary, since he's talking about using this world wireless system to communicate with people all around the globe. A world wireless system. That's Wi-Fi. Did Tesla have the idea for Wi-Fi? It also does a good job within these first few minutes of showing how skeptical people became of Tesla. When he asks the would-be investors he's talking to for a mere $50,000 for his world wireless system, which would be a mere $1.45 million in 2020 money, the crowd balks, with some of them pointing out the far-fetched things that Tesla said in the past. Well, the past for this episode of Doctor Who, anyway. Some of those outlandish things they highlight, like the radio signals that Tesla claimed to have received from Mars, for example, he hasn't said yet, because from the perspective of our podcast, there's still years in the future for Tesla, and oh no, I've gone cross-eyed. At about the three and a half minute mark, the plot kicks into gear with the discovery of a dead body. The man who discovers the body says it was probably one of the machines that electrocuted him, and Tesla's female sidekick, Dorothy Scarrett, says that Tesla will investigate because they don't want anyone thinking there's a fatal flaw in his system. So, it's a nice way of playing on some of the War of the Currents fears about the lethal potential of alternating current. Historical side note here, Dorothy Scarrett was a real person. She was Tesla's secretary for many years. The hitch here is that in the real world, Tesla and Scarrett didn't meet until 1912, a number of years after this episode's setting in 1903. Anyway, so they're investigating this body, which no one seems to think is worthwhile alerting the police about. Some digging around reveals that it's not a flaw in the system, but rather some missing parts that led to the man's electrocution. Tesla, alone, rounds a corner to discover a floating green ball that he quickly grabs. There's some commotion off camera, and it becomes clear that someone is following him. Then laser fire. As Tesla and Scarrett hide from this menacing figure out of nowhere, as is often the case, pops the doctor with a miner's lamp on her head. She asks if they've seen anything weird around here. The group is pursued by the unknown menace and manages to escape aboard a train headed to New York City, ditching their pursuer by detaching the car. At the end of the chase, the doctor says she's a big fan of Tesla, but it's a shame that he's a liar. He said he hadn't seen anything strange, but the energy readings that are still coming from him are so strange that she's sticking with him until all this gets sorted out. Tesla is secretly still holding on to that little green ball. When they get back to Tesla's lab in New York, there are a group of anti-alternating current protesters outside demanding that research on the death current stop. Egged on by Edison, they hassle Tesla about his last invention having caused an earthquake and ask why he's building weapons out on Long Island as a reference to his Wardenclyffe Tower. These are all nice little add-ins and give some flavor of Tesla's life. In another historical side note here, of course, the chronology is all wrong. By 1903, when this episode is set, the War of the Currents was over, and people really weren't worried about alternating current as a death current anymore. But it is a nice way to weave in Edison, who will appear in the episode shortly, and hint at the antagonism between the two men. As for the earthquake machine and the idea of Wardenclyffe as a weapon, well, we'll get to those in a later episode of the main podcast. There's a nice little sequence in Tesla's lab where the doctor explains to her companions who Tesla is. Nikola Tesla dreams up the 20th century before it happens. Before you have x-rays, Tesla has shadow graphs. Before you have drones, Tesla has automatons. Before Marconi gets the patent for radio, they have to take it from Tesla because he invents it first. She points out that he should have been a billionaire if he hadn't torn up his contract with Westinghouse, 
saying that business isn't his strong suit. All of these things are, of course, correct and really nice touches by the writer, Nina Matevier, who has clearly done her research. So, from here on out is where this really becomes a Doctor Who episode. The Doctor identifies the floating green orb as an orb of Thassa, designed to share knowledge, but this one has been repurposed toward unknown ends, though she ought to assume they're sinister because that's literally the case every time any incarnation of the Doctor stumbles upon something that has been repurposed toward unknown ends. After spotting a spy for Edison and chasing him away, the Doctor and two of her companions visit Edison's workshop, suspecting him to be behind the attacks on Tesla. They find Thomas Edison there in his shop, played by Robert Glenister. While he hasn't had anything to do with the plot against Tesla, when he learns that aliens are involved, he's rather miffed that they sought out Tesla rather than him. It's kind of hilarious if you think about it, and a nice way to highlight the rivalry between the two men. Edison becomes a temporary companion for the episode and acts as a kind of frenemy to Tesla and the Doctor. As they wrap up their intro to Edison, the cloaked figure arrives at Edison's lab and fatally electrocutes all the workers in his shop before chasing the Doctor and her companions. That's not going to be good for business. That's not going to be good for anybody. The group escapes and traps their pursuer in a chemical ring of fire, but it gets beamed up. The doctor tries to warn Tesla and Yaz, her other companion, who remain back at his lab in New York. There's a nice shot around 25 and a half minutes into the episode of Tesla sitting on a chair in his lab that looks a lot like the famous photo of him sitting underneath a cascade of electric arcs in his Colorado Springs laboratory. It's a nice visual reference to a very famous image of Tesla that we will talk about in more detail in a future episode of the podcast, but that shot was one for the real Tesla fans out there. Unfortunately for Tesla and Yaz, they're captured and transported to an invisible alien ship above the city. We meet the Skithra, a hive species of giant alien scorpions, and we meet their queen, who demands Tesla fix up her ship. Tesla, being a stand-up guy, refuses, so the queen threatens to kill Yaz unless he helps. But, as the doctor so often does, she transports herself onto the ship just in time to stop her companion from being killed. The Doctor discovers that the Skithra ship is just a collection of stolen parts from various other species, and the Skithra just use others to do their work for them. The Skithra also chose Tesla as their engineer because he was able to discover the signal of their cloaked ship while he had been working on his wireless power system, which is a nice explanation for the supposed signals from Mars that Tesla believed he had received, which were referenced at the start of the episode. The Doctor transports herself, Tesla, and Yaz back to Tesla's Wardenclyffe laboratory. The Doctor warns the Queen to leave, but the Queen refuses, threatening if Tesla is not given over, she will destroy Earth. While Tesla and the Doctor hook up the TARDIS to help power Tesla's Wardenclyffe tower, Yaz, Edison, and the rest of the Doctor's companions ward off the invading scorpion-like Skithra. The tower activates, and the electrical bolts shoot through the Skithra ship, forcing it to leave the Earth. The next day, in a final scene, as the Doctor and her companions prepare to depart from 1903, Yaz is disappointed to learn that despite Tesla's heroics, his reputation in the future remains unchanged. But the Doctor reminds her that Tesla's vision for a wireless world would still come to pass. And this final scene is genuinely heartbreaking and wonderful all at once. We share Yaz's frustration as she's told about Tesla's eventual death in obscurity, despite all that he gave to the world. 
And when Tesla rejoins the group after this discussion happens, the way the actor plays his reaction, you feel like Tesla knows that they know something unhappy about his future. But he doesn't pry into details, and he doesn't complain about the inequity of life. But rather, he seems to accept his fate, knowing that someday he will be vindicated, even if he won't live to see it. The present is theirs. I work for the future. And the future is mine. This is a special kind of poignant moment that the time travel conceit at the heart of Doctor Who allows the show to do really well. If you haven't seen it, go look up the scene on YouTube where the Doctor takes Vincent van Gogh into the future to see a display of his paintings at the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. The acting and emotion in that scene is incredible, and I genuinely tear up every time I see it. This scene didn't hit me quite as hard as that one, but it was close, and the bittersweetness of the moment was really well done. So, what did I think of the episode? Well, I liked it. It was solid. It was okay. For me, it's not an all-time favorite Doctor Who episode, as I found the middle bit with the Scorpion aliens kind of a typical or predictable the Doctor saves the universe from aliens kind of sequence. Nothing that we haven't really seen from the show countless times. Your mileage may vary. But I thought the writer and the production team, and especially the actor playing Tesla, all did a fantastic job of bringing a pretty authentic portrayal of Nikola Tesla into the Doctor Who universe. The episode rates around 89% on Rotten Tomatoes when last I checked, and this is a very solid mid-season Doctor Who episode. Truthfully, a number of comments I saw online expressed surprise that the Doctor and Tesla hadn't previously met at any point in the long history of the franchise. They seem like a natural fit. Doctor Who, in addition to the TV show, also has a long history of tie-in media, such as books, and especially audio dramas voiced by the actual cast, sometimes even long after their televised adventures have ended. One of the beauties of having so many incarnations of the Doctor, I guess. And although I haven't listened to it, there is a Doctor Who audio drama called Maker of Demons, starring the seventh Doctor, Sylvester McCoy, and his companion Melanie, in which a passing reference is apparently made to Nikola Tesla having previously aided the Doctor in defeating an alien race called the Vardens. Doctor Who isn't always super fussy about the internal logic of its chronology, often dismissing seeming contradictions or paradoxes as the result of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. That's a direct quote, by the way. So it's unclear exactly when in the chronology this adventure with Tesla might have taken place. If we're going to get nitpicky about it, It seems likely to have happened for Tesla after the events of this episode, but for the Doctor before the seventh incarnation. So it's in the future for Tesla, but in the past for the Doctor, but yet the Doctor from the future doesn't remember visiting Tesla in her own past. Oh no, I've gone cross-eyed again. It's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. I think, as I said at the top of the show, the restriction of the one-hour format means that things were flying by at what felt like a breakneck pace from virtually the moment the episode started. If this had been produced in the old three-half-hour segment format, I think there could have been a little bit more room for some of these beats to breathe, and for us just to get a bit more of the character rather than just all of the running all over the place. And I think the problem that Doctor Who faces, which is a pitfall of any TV show that is mostly episodic in nature, is that if you're saving the world every week, we can pretty much feel assured that the lives of the Doctor and any of her companions are not really in genuine danger. 
When companions leave the show or die, or when the doctor regenerates into the next actor taking on the role, these things tend to happen at the end of the season or in one of the many Christmas specials that Doctor Who is famous for. So you're not really anxious if it isn't one of those episodes. So while the bits with Tesla were well done, for me the episode lacked a certain level of tension because I never really felt like anyone was in any genuine danger. If there was some other device other than alien invasion that they could have woven into this episode to make the stakes more personal for Tesla or for one of the main cast regulars, I think they could have taken a very solid episode up to the level of all-time classic Who. So, I'm going to give this episode a very solid three Tesla coils out of five. However, I thought Goran Vishnich did a great job as Tesla. He certainly had the look down, and he was really compelling to watch throughout, so I'm going to give his performance a well-deserved four out of five Tesla coils. So, that brings us to the end of our first Tesla Goes to the Movies episode. I hope you like this little diversion from the main podcast, and that you'll get a chance to check out the Doctor Who episode, Nikola Tesla's Night of Terror, for yourself. If you do, I'd love to hear your thoughts, either on Facebook, on Twitter at OurManCotto, or via email at tesla at kottowich.com. Next time, we have the second of three back-to-back-to-back Tesla Goes to the Movies episodes, when we look at an episode of the new MacGyver show called Tesla plus Bell plus Edison plus Mac. Stay tuned for that next time. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Kottowich.